There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Lillian Crawford. And I'm Adam Woodward. On the show this week, first up we have the award-winning French drama Happening. We'll also be hearing from Happening's director, Audrey Duane. Then Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage in the unbearable weight of massive talent. And in Film Club it's yet more Nick Cage, twice as much, in fact, in adaptation. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back, listeners. Lillian, Adam, welcome back as well. Adam, it's been a while. How are things doing with you? It has, yeah. I'm sort of. I feel like I'm back on my beat this week with sort of middling blockbusters and, you know, films about sad French teenagers. So it's um, good, good to be back. And uh, yeah, no, been been fairly busy. Um, been catching up with with stuff that I kind of missed from last last year, basically, and and, and the sort of award season just gone. So I just saw Bergman Island last night. Um, which was a delight and yeah very very excited to to sort of see um to see that and and, and yeah Mia Hansen Love has got a new film in in Cannes as well so yeah I was like I, I need to definitely watch that before I see the new one so um yeah no it's it's uh it's it's all good absolutely Lillian how are you doing how are things in Manchester things are good yeah uh just getting ready to film some more things which is exciting um but yeah mo- mostly looking at the can slate as ev- I do every year and wishing that I was there <laughs> as, as, especially as uh, there's more Mia Hansen love that just feels like it's sort of rubbing it in for me but mm-hmm. yeah I I, um, I will echo Adam's words that, that Bergman Island is magnificent and everyone should see it Absolutely. yeah I, I agree so none of us are going to Cannes so we'll have to wait for Hannah and David, maybe, next week on the podcast. <laughs> You'll just get nothing but FOMO from us if we talk about Cam. But Lillian, you've been really doing well at the moment with lots of really great writing online. Oh, the piece went thank up, you. Uh, all over the place. Uh, do you want to plug anything you've been writing recently? Yeah, I've just had a piece that I sort of swore to myself I would never write about a certain children's author who has gone rogue. Um, and uh, that's that's out now, so I'm sort of enjoying it while everyone is being nice about it before before i have to sort of mute twitter um but yeah that that's um that's something i I wrote recently for gq so check that out definitely (laughs) definitely seek it out it's a a, great piece to read but we should talk about new releases this week we have two very different films we have a french movie and then a big nick cage movie but first we'll start with happening 
Here's a bit of blurb about happening. In 1963, student Anne has a bright future ahead of her, but her dreams of finishing her studies are shattered when she becomes pregnant. As her final exams approach, Anne decides to take matters into her own hands. Now, before we dive into our thoughts about happening, first we have a clip with an interview with director Audrey Dewan by our own David Jenkins. Audrey, congratulations on on your film. Um, I you. saw it in Venice and it was just, you know, for me, it's one of the best things at the festival. And I think I spoke to you there before you'd won the, the prize. And I think everyone was kind of an, anticipating you taking some 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 <laughs> prizes home. I guess my, my uh, first question would be, how how has your how has things been since picking up that major prize and how's your what's can you tell us about your journey since then um it's hectic <laughs> <laughs> uh i okay when i we've made the movie it was quite a fight you know finding the moon money to make it uh and then we always hope with my producer Edouard Vey that we would be able to show it in different places in different countries and thanks to the Golden Lion, the gates open, but like in literally everywhere in the world. So now I had to figure out how to go everywhere to talk about the movie. And, and my main concern is that to keep, m to keep it meaningful. You know, I don't want to say the same thing all the time until I don't even understand what I'm saying. So I, I, I really try to think again about what was the meaning of the movie and give very precise answers and open discussion. And this, this was very interesting because uh, I went to Italy, to Austria, and, and with, I spoke with so many different people and people were against abortion also. So it was very intense and interesting in that way, because some people would tell me, like, okay, I was against abortion. Well, I am against abortion, but I must say that I never, I have never imagined what was the exact journey of a girl trying to get an illegal abortion. So I'm not saying that they've changed their mind with only one movie, but a little gate opened where we can open a discussion, and that's one of the reasons I've made the movie. I wondered on that journey has it, have you had noticeably different reactions from from women and men? Oh yes. <laughs> um it happened that men uh, have fainted. Oh really? Yeah. But uh, and they all said to me we had no idea. So the main difference is that even if lots of women me included when I read the book uh, we didn't exactly know what is this story, you know? They, the men have l less ideas, representation, so they struck him harder, I guess. But it was also interesting to talk because we it's not a story only about illegal abortion, so we also talked a lot about sex, uh, sexual freedoms, uh, intellectual freedom, and, you know, being a girl for an hour and a half is watching the world in a very different way, in very different dimensions. Because I think that's what, that is a fascinating element of the film. The male characters are presented as, I mean, you, you empathize with them, but at the same time, they, they just have no idea that this world exists. And, and you, you watch the film and you kind of think, well, this 
how true is this today you know <laughs> <laughs> this is a good question <laughs> um and i would love everyone who watched the movie to answer that question you know um i s i really tried never to judge the characters i think that anya knows in her book doesn't do it and men are not except for one bad or good they just don't know and there is one character in the movie played by Casey Modeclin that I love, Jean, uh, because this man uh, is the worst at the beginning, but he's the worst because he doesn't have a clue of what she's going through. So his only way of thinking is that she's already pregnant so we can have sex together. Yeah. But throughout the movie, he's also the character who is making the most impressive journey. And at the end, he's one of the only characters who is ready to help her, uh, even if he is re risking to go to jail. W could I ask you also about the, the book that this is inspired from, the mm -hmm. Annie Ernaux book, um, which is kind of like a memoir, like, and <clears throat> I think are there elements of fiction there or is it pure no. remembrance? It, it's not only pure remembrance, mm -hmm. but uh, there are two things in the book, one I adapted, one I put in the movie, and the other not. There is uh, the past, the 63 years, based on her diary. And it's also about her trying to, f to get to the exact feelings and to the, to the exactness of memories. I, I try to adapt only the first part because if I would have embodied uh, the writer trying to get back in times, I would have made the story settled in the past. And I wanted to have the feeling that we were in 63 and living step by step in that moment. But uh, yeah, she always tried to say the truth, you know, never to have any kind of legend about her, but the truth even when it has to be cruel. And I think it's very bold. And when did you first encounter the book? And is it something that was presented to you as a kind of something to be made into a movie? Or no. is it so something that you had had encountered yourself? And um, I read a lot of Annie Arno's book before I actually read um, Happening. The book didn't work in France. When it was out, there is there was no mediatic echo. And Annie told me that she had the feeling that even beginning of 2000, nobody really wanted to hear that story. Uh, so I discovered the, the book. A friend advised me to, to, to read it uh, after I had an abortion, medicalized abortion myself, and I wanted to read about it. And a friend told me about that book, and I was shocked. First of all, I read the book, and I had the feeling to read some kind of very intimate thriller like something that was written in the body fighting against time and second after second so i couldn't stop reading it from the beginning to the end also it's a very short book mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and then i was struck by by, by something <clears throat> i um, realized that i didn't know much about illegal abortion while reading the book and when you is this something you do when you read a, when you're reading novels, when you're reading books or bi biographies or memoirs, things like that? Are you are you kind of constantly searching for things that can be can be made into movies, or do you th is that do you think about movies when you're reading books? I was not. I think it's harder and harder not to do it. 
to be honest. But when I read this book, I was not do t not at all uh, thinking that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I was really carefully looking at it for very intimate reason, and I'm trying to do so mm -hmm. as much as I can because you know you're you don't have the same feelings when you are actually looking for something. And I want this to be more sincere in a way. So I prevent myself from doing that. Also, I'm not able to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. And and was could you tell, tell us a bit about how Annie was involved in the film or, mm -hmm. you know, g getting the rights to be able to adapt her book and wh whether she had any notes for you on, on any on drafts or anything like that? Um, so I, I, I told her at first that I wanted to, to try to make the movie be an experience told through the body, told by th through the body, and she she liked the idea. Then she did something very important. So we went through the book chronologically from the beginning to the end, and I asked quest her questions about what was not in the book, about um, the social context, the f the fear I could feel through all the characters, you know, everybody was very scared because of the law, and she told me more about the law, the police, and seeing that you don't see in the movie, but I wanted the audience to feel like an atmosphere, and also about her friends, her family, and then she agreed on reading three versions of the text <clears throat> in order to tell me what was right and what was not regarding the context, the period. So for me, it was kind of very helpful because I was free to write. And some, if something was not right regarding to the 60s, she would tell me, you know, I think that by that time, I wouldn't have said things that way. So um, she, it was kind of uh, having a path, and she helped me follow that path. And of course, I was very scared when I, I showed the movie to her. She was my the first watcher, first audience. I was not in the room. I, I uh, jumped in the room at the very end of the movie, and um, she stayed silent for for a few seconds. And then she said, "Hmm, I think it's right." And so I was happy because make it right was our main concern, you know. And then she said. But Aurea, I still believe there is one problem. And I was like, oh my God. And she was like, I think there were no Tupperwares uh, in 63. You know? And I said, Tupperware? <laughs> if the, it's the only problem, then I will write it myself in, to the journalist. Like, we only have one problem <laughs> in Tupperwares, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, but that, that's just to, to, to make fun of it. But then she wrote me a beautiful letter on how much she loved the movie. And she also said that nobody could have in a better way than Anna Maria Bartolome uh, embodied the girl she was by the time. So did, did they have any contact? They were supposed to meet before the shooting. But it was the pandemic, <coughs> the lockdown, and they weren't able to. And at first, Anna Maria was frustrated. But then she made something out of it because she felt free uh, to find her own Anne, or the character, the way she would think about it. So I guess it gave her, her and I more freedom, not trying to, you know, imitate in a way. And, and then when they finally meet, the movie was already made. And, and it was a beautiful 
meeting the, t- the two of them because they were happy of the result. And I think it was even be- better that uh, the meeting t- took place after, finally. Mm-hmm. The final question then, are you, are you thinking about some, working on another project? Are you, uh, is that, uh, are you racing ahead with that or are you sort of waiting and... W- no, no, I have a new movie. I, I've started writing a new movie. I was actually in my room this morning and I was like, oh, I think I have new ideas for this new movie. Oh, so wow. I'm so happy. Uh, and I can't tell much about it now, but it's. I think I'm still obsessed with the body idea and th- that I have to follow this, you know, first impulse, you know, telling so- stories through body in a way, but in a different way, but it's still something that inspires me in a very different kind of story, but that's where I am now. <laughs> oh, it's an ex- exciting stage to be. <laughs> the hardest stage, I guess. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks to David for tackling that interview for us, and thank you to Audrey for joining us on the podcast. So Lillian, this film uh, premiered at the Fenice Film Festival last year, won the top prize there. There's a lot of hype around this, so what's the buzz? Tell me about happening. Yeah, it won um, it won the Golden Lion, which is which is great because uh, two years ago, I think now um, that award was won by Joker, and I kind of thought, right, well, has 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 Venice sort of like. What what sort of arbiter of taste is Venice anymore? And then uh, Chloe Shaw won it for Nomadland last year, so so it's it's good that sort of we're back into the tradition of um, great sort of up and coming female directors taking home the uh, the the Golden Lion. So I, I was very excited to see this film. Um, I I love um, the 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 memoir by Annie Arnaud, which is also called uh, Happening or Le Venement in French. Um, which, which is sort of about um, uh, g- trying to get an abortion as, as, as a young woman in, in the early 60s, um, late 50s, early 60s in, in France, um, when it was very much not legal, and the sort of trials and tribulations that, that the lead character sort of goes through in trying to get what really ought to be, um, well, at least in, in, in Audrey Duane's view, and, and, and certainly in my view, it should be a sort of basic human right um and i think what's so special about this film is that um there's never an option that it wouldn't be that that that, that there is sort of within a world where not being able to have the health care that she requires is 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 just objectively wrong there's no sort of it's not like um juno where you have people outside sort of abortion centers with 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 um, placards sort of giving the alternative view. Um, This is very much a political film, um, which I think is quite rare. We don't often see films Mm. that sort of don't don't give voice to an an opposite opinion that it doesn't believe should exist. You know, it's, it's the framework in which the world is set without needing to sort of have a debate about it it's like this is this is my thesis this is this is my experience and this is what it was like and the results of that are absolutely devastating that someone who who needs this treatment so that she can go to university and carry on studying literature but because she has this this desire to have well (laughs) as as many young women do have this desire to have sex with men and as a result because of the lack of uh, various factors in her life, she has gotten pregnant, and her friends think, say, tell her, "Oh, you're just the unlucky one." Um, it's very, 
it's very distressing that she can't then sort of take back control of her life that it's almost like this sort of i think she describes it as a disease that is only for women and that there is no mm -hmm. that you know it's it's incurable but she has to she's constantly told you know just accept it you have to make your peace with this um and because she refuses to do that she sort of has to go through struggles in her personal life and struggles in in her academic life and it's it's incredibly distressing it is a distressing watch i should stress that mm. um but it's also it's also an important one and and one that i think i came away from feeling very positive about mm. and it, it really does sketch out this almost brick wall of uh, of a culture where she really can't go to ask anyone for advice or help because it's illegal and you see just the empathy or the compassion just melt away on characters faces her professor her family doctor some of her friends even when the the even in count she's couching it in sort of metaphorical terms sometimes or um euphemistic terms and they they, they just put up that brick wall so it's fascinating as a time capsule but also these narratives are always relevant because there's always somewhere in the world where these things yeah. are, are relevant, uh, sometimes closer to home than we think. Um, what's this film doing different, differently stylistically? Because this yeah. one has been getting real raves yeah. out of the festival circuit. No, that's that's a really important question. I think I think that's you sort of touched on it with the time aspect, but you know, you, sort of before I saw the film, if I'd seen like sort of promotional stills or whatever, I didn't really know when it was set because it, they're sort of dressed mm. in this very timeless clothing. Um, if the setting feels very timeless, so it could actually be anyway. It's only when they actually start mentioning sort of factors about the time and that abortion is illegal and you think, oh my goodness, okay, so we are pre sort of second wave feminism here. We're pre sort of, I mean, the, the, the great sort of abortion rights film <laughs> in my mind is... Um, one sings the other doesn't. Um, Chante Lotte Pas by Agnès Varda, which is this, this sort of very, you know, the, the 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 sort of meme of Agnès Varda saying, "I wanted to be a joyful feminist, but I was very angry," or whatever it is. Um, and and she sort of makes this this almost musical about abortion rights in 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 the nineteen seventies. And this is the the extreme opposite of that. It's very minimalist. It's very stripped back. But I think the thing that I found most powerful is that this is a film made by Audrey Duane and, and, and sort of there's been a lot of discussion sort of post Portrait of a Lady on Fire about the female gaze and sort of what that what that means and obviously in, in, in the sense of portrait I think it's that the female gaze is a way of looking at, at, at female bodies that is sort of desirous whereas in this case it feels very much sort of that and, and, and which is a very French way of looking I suppose which is that the naked body is not of course in and of itself sexual or sensual that it is shown very objectively and there is this um this one sex scene in the film which is very much centers on her desire and her need for that 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 intimacy um which i found quite striking as i say it's stylistically it's different in terms of what it's doing in the way that the way it's positioned but that the focus is purely on her and and the pleasure that she gets from that and then the fact that she is punished for that pleasure while the male figures in the film are almost non-existent or sort of detached from from that experience and that 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 struggle that she faces mm, that's something that really struck me about this film is as you say when you say focus of course you mean the focus of the film but also the focus of the camera yeah. it's one of those very shallow focus mostly mid or close shot sort of films almost always over her shoulder or on her face mm. um 
which is almost the opposite in my memory to the book. The book is incredible. The book is very much about memory. It's a memoir, and it's about the, this 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 happening, this thing that happened uh, to, to the author that is it was a trauma, and she's only really realizing decades later, p- picking apart these memories as they come back to her. Whereas this is very much in the moment, very much stripped back and bare. Um, Adam, what do you make of this film? Yeah, I mean, sort of, it was nice just listening to Lillian actually, and I'd, I'd sort of echo everything that that she said about it. But um, yeah, I think I think particularly I, I did want to sort of call call attention to the um, to the style of it and and the and the time period and the fact that it is you know is explicitly set in the sixties and it it's sort of it's a decade or so out from when you know abortion was legalized in france but it it crucially doesn't feel anchored in that time period right and it's not sort of it's not sort of offering this window back to the past to be like oh look look at you know look at how how things were then and it it really i think the the approach really helps to make the story kind of resonate with with you know any anyone i mean especially i would i would imagine young women but like watching this today um, I think it's a really interesting thing as well, just just the kind of very subtle social critique that it weaves in, not necessarily to do with, you know, this this um, I suppose more kind of like legislative thing of like you can't get the treatment or or, or the or the kind of support you need um, because it's been criminalised in this in this particular time, but just the idea that these young women, I mean, her, the, you know, the, the main character Anne is a student and her friends her peers they all kind of have this implicit understanding which i suppose has been conditioned you know uh for, for all young women at the time partly because of the fact that abortion is is illegal but they've all been conditioned to to understand that falling pregnant even though this is like the 60s and they're french and they're very kind of you know casual in their kind of sexuality which is you know very very kind of apropos of the time but they they understand that falling pregnant is I mean, you know, they react as if it's a kind of death sentence for them as well. You know, it's like, it's 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 a huge deal, and I think it's interesting that, um, you know, it, it, there there is this kind of critique, I think, of that and and the fact that young women um, are, are conditioned to kind of behave and act that way, and and then as you say, the cruelty of not being able to get that support, and not only that, but going to people who turning to people who should be able to provide support who actually actively conspire against them you know people like doctors and and it's quite kind of shock i think there's a really without spoiling anything there's a kind of really shocking reveal you know with with relation to a a a character who you think would be um or 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 you kind of you know traditionally would be a kind of in in a sort of supportive role um and then of course you know you've you've you kind of take it on, on this kind of trajectory and it's like in in another 20 years this 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 character potentially society expectations would be that they would have had a child by now and and there's a kind of stigma around to being a certain age and not having having had children so it's the, i think it's a really interesting um you know critique of of the kind of social pressures and expectations that are placed on on women with with regards to kind of you know um pregnancy and childbirth yeah, it, it is really fascinating. As you say, Lillian, this is a film that absolutely knows the stance it has. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not afraid of that. But it is subtle in, in some of the social critiques it's making. So it is this quite peaceful balance at times. There's a, there are whole sequences where it really nails, hits a nail on the head where, about in these cultures where 
there are these um, uh, these topics that are, are outlawed or made illegal and therefore not talked about, therefore people aren't educated about. Where are they getting that information from? It's from rumours and gossip, it's from pornography. Uh, it, it, it really does make these points very subtly and very well. But let's put some scores on, on happening. Lillian, I'll come to you first. So this is out of five in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, this this is sort of textbook fives across the board for me in, t- in terms of everything that I wanted to. The only, the only thing that slightly pulled me out of the film was that the music... Um, I, I, I often find it quite strange when films like this and that are very minimalist use music at all um, the music is, is, is pretty much lifted directly um, by the, the Galperines from their score for Zwiegen says Loveless. And I feel like I'm, I'm almost certainly the only person who will notice that and be pulled out of a film by being like, wait a minute, this is, this is the same score that they've written before. Um, I, don't, I, I, I think that that's the only thing. I, I, that's, that's maybe a personal issue with, with, with sort of the use of music in, in films that, that it seemed quite unnecessary here to me um, but I don't think that's enough to sort of put it down from, from fives for me mm. yeah Adam? Yeah I think probably a four in anticipation I mean obviously you know winning the, the top prize at Venice um, and the memoir I hadn't read although I, I would definitely be kind of seeking it out now um, I, I'd say maybe a four at the time pure, purely on the basis that it is it is a tough watch at times and I mean like again without without giving much away it really does kind of go there and uh, and I think you know they you know the, the, the Audrey Duan does really pull it off as well which is which is no mean feat because I think it's there's a there's a lot of risk in some, some of the scenes that that, that that are included here but um, but yeah, no. In, in retrospect, definitely a five. I think it's it's a really important film, and and the kind of you know, the the, the toughness or, or the challengingness of the of the watch is is definitely rewarded. And I think um, it's a film that everyone should see. Yeah, I'd say fours across the board for me. Um, I was very excited to see this. I'd read the book, um, partly inspired out of FOMO, knowing I wouldn't be able to see the film at Venice last year. Um, and the film is definitely worth seeing. I think I'd, I'd, I would have that asterisk on the in retrospect, whereas I think the book is, is, is still takes priority for me. Um, and it has this that element that I was saying about playing with memory and the memoir form and self-reflexivity in a way that isn't too far away from maybe some of the films we're talking about later in the, the episode that the film doesn't have, and very necessarily so, and I think it's a very good adaptation, but I did miss some of the elements of the book. So I think let's consider this a dual recommendation for happening the film and happening the, the book by Annie Erno. But that is happening. Up next, we have Nicolas Cage playing himself in the unbearable weight of massive talent. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Here's a blurb for The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Actor Nicolas Cage begrudgingly accepts a $1 million offer to attend the birthday of a billionaire superfan. When things take a wild turn, Nick is forced to become a version of some of his most iconic and beloved characters in order to extricate his wife and daughter from the fan, who is a notorious drug lord. Adam, Nicolas Cage finally cashing in the meme checks to play himself in a movie. Mm. What what should we uh, expect with the unbearable weight of massive talent? Um, Well... I had no idea what to expect, to be quite honest with this. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I kind of felt like, yes, it, 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 it does look from the, from the marketing and from the sort of synopsis you've read, it, it does kind of seem and, and feel like a, a bit of a, a cheap sort of exploitation or, or, or cash in on, on Cage. Not necessarily his credibility and his career, but more just the idea of, of him, I suppose. I think this is a film not necessarily for fans of Cage and, and, you know, fans of Cage, the actor, it's more for, for fans of Cage, the meme. And, you know, you, you, you probably don't need to have seen any Nick Cage films before to, to appreciate this on the very, very basic level it's aiming for, which is like, Oh, you know, this guy from, from those gifts and, and from, and from those kind of freak out uh, montages. And, and so it kind of very much leans into that. Um, I mean, for what it's worth, I think, Cage himself, you know, he he gives good game in this. I think he's he, he's uh, he, he's obviously up up for it, and 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 very much kind of like the the, the self satirizing, and uh, certainly on his part, I think the self satirizing works. It's quite it's quite fun. I think at times to see him play himself up and uh, and almost like lampoon himself. He's playing this kind of um, I guess partly fictionalized. I mean, the, the the life and the world that's kind of created. Uh, around his character in the film is is fictionalized so he's you know he he has like a daughter and and an ex-wife who he's he's kind of uh slightly estranged from or or trying to connect with so that's the i guess the emotional kind of through line of the film um and he's also someone who's kind of not struggling but he but he's you know not doing the work he wants to be doing i suppose he's he's kind of uh he's floundering i guess at this point in his career and he, and and you know i think the the kind of weird thing with cage in in real life is this is this uh yeah this this kind of constant um push and pull between the the kind of serious actor who we know and love in in these kind of more dramatic roles um which which he still does you know from time to time if you look at a pig or something which came out very recently um you know it's 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 the kind of push and pull between that and the very um very kind of like commercial uh you know straight straight to kind of dvd <laughs> um aspect of his career which he's obviously like 
quite gratefully mine for, for a long time but um so i don't know i think it's 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 a very very weird i mean we talk about this kind of being like a meta story and that he's obviously playing himself and 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 the whole uh the whole the whole plot is 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 kind of driven around this idea of like his his fame right so so that obviously precedes everything like everyone recognizes him in the film as nick cage um although the cage that we see i don't think is maybe as recognizable to us you know it's like a it's as i say it's a kind of like slightly cartoonified version of him um I mean, just just on a basic level of the plot of this film, it, it's kind of like, you know, it kind of wants to have its cake and eat it a little bit, and 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 the sort of, with again without giving much away, it becomes this very kind of banal, very cliched, um, kind of buddy movie um, between Cage and Pedro Pascal's character, and uh, and and I think where it ends up is is just not particularly interesting and 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 uh and and very kind of cheaply signposted and it, it's, it's a sort of film that if it had just been played straight and if you had say like i don't know like a ryan reynolds in in the lead role or someone um just to get my uh my, my kind of you know standard ryan reynolds uh diss in if if it had him in the lead role and it was and it was the film kind of within the film that you see it would be like a, a it would be just like a two-star like you know I think the fact that it adds this layer of like meta textual, oh, but we're we're trying to we're doing something different because it's this like wink wink, um, yeah, self satirizing thing. I don't actually think adds anything to the film or or to that plot. You know, the film is kind of like, the film is the film that it's trying to parody. If you see what I mean, it's very hard to explain without you know for listeners who haven't seen the film. And I and I I wouldn't necessarily recommend you do go and see the film. Um, to, to make sense of my my, uh, my kind of rambling comments but but it does feel like yeah it, it's trying to do it's trying to have its cake and eat it I'm not sure it fully succeeds I'm, I'm, I'm a bit baffled this is going down very well in the states um, mm. you know quite 90 something Rotten Tomatoes score only a handful of critics can, can taking this i agree with you adam i don't like this film i wouldn't recommend it and maybe and part, partly it is because it feels like such a lazy um if, if you get nicholas cage to agree to be in your film to be nicholas cage and play up his own persona and his his history this feels like the laziest way to do it and it's surprising that tom gornican who's only really made one film beforehand um that awkward moment a few like a long mm. time ago not, not many people remember that movie but nicholas cage turned down this film multiple times and they finally got him on board and this was the script that they've been working on for years yeah and yeah. this is what they do with it i uh, mean it, i don't it feels I, like I, a bit of a waste i guess it's like mm-hmm. if you've got nick cage and he's i mean i'd be fascinated fascinated as well to know what was in the previous versions of those scripts that he turned down and, and actually you know, I say he. It feels like everything's kind of fair game, and he's kind of taking a piss out of himself. But I wonder whether there was anything that he actually drew the line under and said, "No, I'm not. I'm not doing that." But I do th- wonder. It, yeah, because also I, it makes me think immediately. I mean, in, in, in the UK, in British comedy and cinema and TV, we do have this long-running um, tradition of of uh, comedians playing themselves from Hancock's Half Hour onwards, all the way up to Michael Winterbottom's, you know, long-running. Uh, collaborations with Steve Coogan and Rob Ryden. So, uh, so we we have this idea of what these things could be, um, from from the, from the best case to the worst case scenarios. And this one just feels very soft. Very end of it, as you say, Adam. There is a point where you could have swapped out Nicolas Cage, swapped out these the couple of key reference points they have. Yeah. 
uh, to, for anybody else. And also, there is that niggling thing in the back of your head. If you're if you're if you're a film fan, you like Nick Cage's work. You know that he's still doing good work. There's a there's an early scene where David Gordon Green has a cameo as a director that Nicolas Cage is, is auditioning for, and he can't get the role in a, in David Gordon Green movie. And of course, he was in Joe. He's been in loads of David Gordon Green. So it was, yeah, it was yeah. amazing. And um, likewise, he does do all these director video films, but he's not Bruce Willis. He still does like one film every eighteen months. This is a cracker, be that Pig or Mandy or whatever. So it's it's it feels like not just an exaggeration of the persona, but a strange exaggeration of the career. Well, L- Lillian, like, what, 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 I was just, I was just going to say, speak. You mentioned Steve Coogan, and there's a very very funny a scene which I think fans of Alan Partridge will uh, will enjoy, which which is. Um, yeah, basically, it's kind of <laughs> he bas- he basically stumbles into a room which is like a shrine to him and full of like cage memorabilia. And you mentioned the film going down well in the states, and I think you know not not to kind of discriminate against audiences there, but I think partly the appeal to this is just that basic recognition of like, oh yeah, there there there's the kind of outfit and the guns from like Face Off, and there's there there's the like, you know bike from ghost rider or whatever it is and it's 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 just appealing on that it's trying to appeal to people on that level of 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 like oh you you recognize these things um and and you know it's funny that cage himself is kind of horrified by this um this kind of partridge-esque setup (coughs) but then the film seems seems to be like oh that's just that's the joke do you know what i mean it's like it doesn't really take it much further and we and we said about a bit feeling like a bit of a waste of having him involved um and so many of those reference points are late 80s, early mid 90s. It's all um, face off and con air. There's a, a wild at heart. There's a sort of place again, Sam feel where he has uh, a, a an apparition of Nicolas Cage circa 1991, almost as if he's walked off that um, that interview he did on the Wogan chat show where he did all the backflips and throwing the money out wearing the leather jacket. So there's a lot of the, it feels you know precision tooled for an audience that thinks of Nicolas Cage nostalgically rather than as a, as a jobbing working actor. But Lillian, what, what, what did you make of this film? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting you're saying about sort of Nicolas Cage memes, that the, the sort of the, the, the whole premise of comedy in films like this is sort of the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme where it's like, I, I, I recognise that thing that he just held up and it's like, great. Um, it does feel like the writers have no knowledge of Nicolas Cage and that Nick Cage has had no sort of real writing involvement in the film which i find absolutely baffling it's almost like they've they've based the entire persona of nick cage as as you said earlier michael spelt with a k which is weird that that is not actually him that it's 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 um it's it's nick cage presented through this very specific sort of period of his career and and these very specific films without mentioning i think moonstruck gets mentioned like very briefly but it's all like his action sort of blockbuster career there's none of the sort of um more nuanced performances that he's done and and you get the impression i, su- I suppose the sort of it's a sort of the memeified version of of nick cage where it's like he doesn't even hear like the full premise of the film and he's like yeah i'm in and it's like okay great um <laughs> i don't know why he's done this film i don't well for money obviously but there is no beyond that premise of nick cage as nick cage there's nothing in this film that i found remotely enjoyable or <laughs> engaging the, the plot makes no sense i mean what even is the plot i don't even know one minute he's an fbi agent and then he's sort of 
involved in this 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 crime ring. I don't know. It, it, it was very bad. Um, and it has Sharon Hawken in it, which was random but delightful. That was my mm. one sort of positive takeaway. She She's okay. And I, I've got to say, the supporting cast in this film is very baffling. And they're, yeah. a, a real bugbear of mine in, in films where you've got someone playing themselves and you've got someone <laughs> kind of playing themselves but not explicitly like David Gordon Green. And then you've got like, it, it, Neil Patrick Harris is in this playing Cage's agent, and I'm sorry, but Neil, you can't have Neil Patrick Harris if he was in if, in this film. He has to be Neil Patrick Harris. Harris. Like there's certain people who can't play fictional versions in a film, which is itself trying to be a kind of meta. Like, do you know what I mean? It, I think you can have just cast someone who's kind of fairly, you know, unrecognizable or just sort of fairly, you know, can kind of just like blend into a crowd a little bit. I, I think it's very weird having someone like Neil Patrick Harris playing a kind of fictional character in this kind of film. There are so mm. many rights issues at play as well. Like the, the the sort of the joke about like the statue of Nicolas Cage that doesn't really look like him, that kind of thing. Or oh, the like, wax work. Yeah. yeah, it's like, well, how much did they actually manage to get the rights to use is so limited. There's a scene which I think has just been released on the internet of where, where they yeah. watch Paddington 2 together. And I found this scene so baffling. Because normally in a film, when characters watch a film together, you'll see like a bit of the film, or you'll even hear some of the dialogue, or even be vaguely suggested that the film they are watching might be the film that they've just mentioned. But there is nothing to suggest that. It's just like a sort of clear blue screen which is being projected, and Nicolas Cage sort of crying at Paddington too. And that's what sort of like passes for humour in this film. That, that, that is the scene um, that really started the long flat line for me yeah. in this film because it, it again it's not only leaning into Nicolas Cage memes it's also just pulling from what, what's trending on Twitter um, yeah exactly what is the film yeah. what is yeah. first of all I suppose the most random film that we could have Nick Cage cry to in a film uh, but also but it's not random the, it's the it, most predictable it's like what, what is, is yeah. now kind of like top of the Rotten Tomatoes like tomatometer thing it's like it, it's the it's the most kind of like conventionally safe mm-hmm. choice they could have gone for yeah but the, and, and then, likewise, this is sort of maybe trying to pull out of this with some positivity. Um, not in this. Let, let, I'll start with the negative first. It's something that's that is a scene that's there to be tweeted, and maybe the at Paddington Bear account with millions of followers will also retweet it, mm-hmm. and the Paddington Two Hive will uh, also share it on social media, and it'll be very big. You know, it's almost as close as you'll get to. Um, releasing a joker scene after the batman comes out right. or finally andrew garfield and toby Maguire in our movie is the closest you can get to something like that with a film like this but you say why would nicholas cage make this movie money is one thing finally cashing in on the meme checks i saw this morning he was on one of the sh- one of the chat shows in the states was it jimmy fallon last night and that's his first time on any chat show in like 12 years 13 years and may- maybe this will just put him back in the public eye in a way that will allow him to do the next bunch of films um so because because for us i suppose for truth the movies in particular because we've covered so many nicholas cage films in the last few years he is still a vital force a great actor doing some of his best work so hopefully he'll continue to be able to do that and this is just will soon become the footnote and everyone will look back and say why would it why did that one get 97 rotten tomatoes <laughs> hmm. but let's put some scores on this adam i'll come to you first yeah i um two in anticipation i guess i think maybe like a maybe a two in enjoyment and then a one in retrospect i mean the only thing i'd say about this film is 
if it leads to kind of Cage being able to make like pick two, then maybe it will have been justified. But beyond that, I think there's there's just like very, very diminishing returns for everyone here. Lillian? Yeah, I'll echo pretty much exactly what Adam said. I think my anticipation might have been a bit higher because I think I sort of hoped that it would, I mean, we'll get onto this in a minute, be a sort of Charlie Kauf- Kaufman sort of being John Malkovich type, type, type film. Um, but then I saw the trailer hundreds of times in the cinema and there was like this one joke about getting over a wall with Pedro mm. Pascal, which when it actually happened in the film felt like the longest. Oh, it's so scene. long. It's oh so, my God. It's <laughs> such a bad joke. Um, yeah. But, which basically sums up the whole film. So yeah, I, I'd probably yeah end on a one. Uh, this this is truly bad cinema. <laughs> I mean, they they put it in the title, the word unbearable. Uh, I I'd agree, two two one for me as well. But listeners, maybe you'll feel differently. This has gone down well with audiences in the states and other, other critics as well. Let us know what you make of this, as well as happening at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter or Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com via email. Up next, we're going back twenty years for a cage highlight adaptation Nicolas Cage is Charlie Kaufman a confused LA screenwriter overwhelmed by feelings of inadequacy sexual frustration self-loathing and by the screenwriting ambitions of his freeloading twin brother Donald while struggling to adapt The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean Kaufman's life spins from pathetic to bizarre the lives of Kaufman and Orlean's book become strangely intertwined as each one's search for passion collides with the others. So, Lillian, you you, you alluded to th- thoughts about adaptation <laughs> just earlier. So, uh, where does this come for you in terms of Charlie Kaufman, Nicolas Cage, and all well, I think in between? Yeah, well, I think this was probably. Am I right in saying this was probably the first Nicolas Cage film that I saw that was really great and changed my opinion of him I think I think before that point the ones I'd seen were like The Sorcerer's Apprentice I think I remember right. seeing for like a birthday party when I was a child uh, which is very very bad um, and I'd seen that like National Treasure which I, I love, I still love National Treasure I think I think the, the first National Treasure is, is, is a really fun film even if it has many pitfalls so the first sort of like proper performance from him that I saw was probably adaptation where I I remember having a sort of double bill of this and being John Malkovich one evening and it was like wow look at these amazing things you can do with film um that that Charlie Kaufman sort of goes in directions that no one else really goes in um and I I absolutely love what he does with with Nick Cage here sort of turning him into himself almost and then have it so it's, it's 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 sort of this it's reflexive in a way that that what I was hinting at with with unbearable way to massive talent is that like in order to be that reflexive you actually have to have written it yourself like this is mm. this is well I say it's Charlie Kaufman being quite naked we can't we I don't know the extent to which this is that but it feels that way um more so I think than Ant Kind which was his debut novel which I read um, which is this sprawling like (laughs) massive book that sort of goes in directions that you just can't even do on screen it's like when you read like the original ending of being John Malkovich and there's like a giant Mm. there are like these giant puppets and things and it's it's absolutely crazy Um, things that you can't actually put on on camera Um, that that he's able to do with this film and it, it, it does feel like I think 
of all of his his screenplays sort of post Malkovich this perhaps is the one that is the most accessible or the most or the easiest perhaps to follow like it doesn't if I'm thinking of something like I'm thinking of ending things which which really sort of divided people I think the adaptation is perhaps one of his his safer screenplays you know what he's doing it's very clear and there's a real sort of thesis to it um <laughs> and a, yeah I, I think it's it's fascinating looking at something like the Orchid People. Like, how would you adapt that book? There's there's no. It, it's one of these really strange questions of like, what what would a film of the Orchid Thief actually look like? Well, I suppose this is this is the best possible film that could have come out of that book. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think back to my first experience of adaptation. I think I got it as an ex rental DVD from Blockbuster, um, in Walkden, and. Um, <laughs> You say it's accessible. It is very accessible to sit down and watch this film and just play like a comedy. And Nicolas Cage is great in the dual roles of Charlie. I, 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 I should stress more accessible than Kaufman's other films. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but it, it, even rewatching it now, it's a very easy one to watch because I think, he, at least here, maybe less so in his other films, Charlie Kaufman has such great control over the very strange things he's trying to do, and so the way that this film is about the writing process it's about writer's block it's about adapting something that is fundamentally unadaptable and then how you then wrestle it back it's writing a screenplay by in the end having to sacrifice many of your um you know, your uh, to give up many of your like ambitions for that screenplay and uh, go down roots and use the dark arts of Robert McKee's story that you maybe wouldn't otherwise use as the great genius unconventional screenwriter Charlie Kaufman it and then it does the thing that unbearable weight of uh, massive talent tries to do which is to have your cake and eat it thing where halfway through this stops being the Charlie Kaufman script and starts being the Donald script and it introduces a thriller subplot in the third act it creates fictional relationships that didn't between um, between the characters in the in the source book that didn't exist and drugs and all these other things but it but it manages to somehow keep that on an even keel all the way through and land perfectly um, which I think, I, I haven't rewatched a lot of Kaufman's films in a long time, but I think this is where he really manages to, uh, to, to be successful across the board. Um, Adam, what, what, what do you think of Adaptation? Would you have watched it when this first came out, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I love this film. I mean, maybe not when it first came out. Um, it probably would have been similar to you, like get, getting a kind of, you know, rental. Um, but you know, I'd, I'd I'd probably by this point watched being John Malkovich, and 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 more more so would have been a probably a fan of Spike Jones, I would say, than mm. than Charlie Kaufman, or or at least been more familiar with with his work. Um, and and but yeah, this is I mean, this is like one of the better. I think generally, when I think of like the better Nick Cage performances, I think of you know the the earlier part of his career i suppose and i i, I just re rewatched like raising arizona and I, that that's that's kind of where i generally like place my sort of favorite cage era but but this i think you know i know it's like 20 years old now which which yeah it does does make me feel very old as well but i think this is like a really strong contender for one of his best and uh, and i thought it'd be an interesting choice because of the dual role and and we should say unbearable weight of massive talent has this it's not a dual role as such but it has this kind of weird um re recurring character who is a sort of younger version of nick mm. cage who appears as a kind of like i, I don't know what you call him like a like a sort of conscience i suppose um 
and and, and he's kind of he's, he's a bit of a composite of older Cage characters. He's sort of based on like Sailor Ripley, um, and, and a few others, I think. And 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 he's got this very odd like CGI kind of de-aged make makeup look, very un- uncanny valley. It was very kind of uncomfortable watching it, but. But it's just, yeah, I think it's weird, it's weird that he doesn't. They don't really do much with that character. It's it's a bit of a kind of wasted opportunity to have Cage really going there. And it's and again, it's it's funny that he's shown he's got such good form with being able to deliver a, a dual performance, um, playing kind of very much two sides of the same coin in this in this instance as, as kind of Donald and and, and Charlie. Um, but no, I love this film. I think that, that you know the supporting cast as well. We should give a shout out to because I think. In, in a film that I know we've said it's kind of as accessible as, as Charlie Kaufman tends to get, but, um, you know, you look at the, the supporting cast and you've got like Meryl Streep playing Susan Orlean and Brian Cox, has got one of my favorite Brian Cox performances, I think as, as Robert McKee. I mean, the, 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 the kind of dismantling of, of Cage's ego at the, at the lecture or the seminar he's giving is, is just like one of the, I mean, yeah, it's one of the great, it's kind of like proto Logan Roy meltdown, but, it is it is like that's that's kind of one of one of my favorite scenes i think in the film and then and then the sort of they go for a drink afterwards don't they and and uh, mm-hmm. they have this sort of more i guess more kind of like heart to heart moment but but yeah it's just really strong performances all around i think as as well as having kind of cage in this central role um i think it's just a film that really knows how to kind of use the the talent at its disposal whereas unbearable weight is kind of the i guess like the antithesis of that Absolutely, I'd like to mention Tilda Swinton, also fantastic, and uh, Ron Livingston. So you mentioned how uh, Neil Patrick Harris plays Cage's manager or agent in Unbearable Weight. In this one, it's um, it's Ron Livingston playing Charlie Kaufman's manager, and that's a great couple of scenes that he's in. It is interesting watching films from 20 years ago. There are some elements that have, are definitely dated to the period. Like I don't think uh, a film released today would... I don't think the, the, the appetite or the patience is there for a film that looks so um, closely at... Um, the self-loathing that is purely about sexual inadequacy and sort of a straight male kind of protagonist but it really does capture a time where there was so much like excitement and and innovation ambition imagination in what was released as an independent american movie starring nicholas cage who was a name actor at the time uh, which maybe would we get that now it probably would be put on netflix like i'm thinking of ending things and then Mm. forgotten about the week after it's uh sad sir let's 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 not get too nostalgic let's, no let's, but I, that, I, that leads to unbearable way to massive talent doesn't it yeah I know, I know what you mean about this certain things not having aged and like it, it definitely was a time when the kind of you know i guess male ego in all its frailties was kind of in hollywood was a lot more willing to indulge it a bit more and there's i mean there's scenes in this like i i, I think the the scene where he's kind of um he he he, asks, he very awkwardly asks or tries to ask out like Judy Greer's wait, waitress character and that and that you know, I I think we're sort of meant to sympathize with him and it's quite a kind of pathetic moment but but really it's like this I I don't know I think I think you'd play that scene very differently today for example well that's something that mm-hmm. Kaufman sort of has continued to do that but I mean mm-hmm. that is basically what Ankind sort of feels like is 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 this sort of deconstruction of 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 the sort of as you say, male inadequacy, but I, I suppose maybe he would like to think of that novel as his magnum opus, but for me it's very much Synecdoche, New York, and this is sort of the, the proto-film 
to that that it's like well how far down sort of the creative mind and and, and layers of, of within that can I go um, and Synecdoche is his sort of directorial debut and he's able to sort of blow that up and Philip Seymour Hoffman sort of gives the incredible performances like the the sort of theatre director who sort of takes on this massive project that, that sort of seems to be running away from him constantly and it's it's similar in in a way to sort of what Nick Cage is doing here I think that that I mean I don't think it's uncontro it's controversial to say that that Hoffman is the is the better actor but uh, I, I I do think it is fun seeing Nicolas Cage do do bring bring sort of some of his quirks to to mm. that style of filmmaking and that style of of sort of psychoanalysis I suppose Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, when I watched this rewatched adaptation this week, I wanted to go straight into Snetka, New York, which I haven't watched probably again since release, because it's quite a it's quite a heavy one to not just to um, get your head around, but then also to, to to ponder on as you watch and then afterwards. But I, I I love this film because it it just it just feels so alive and slippery. It keeps you thinking and guessing on your toes all the way through, whilst also entertaining you, which is something that. You can't say about many films that try to do one or the other. Mm. Oh, it's um, good fun, yeah. So that's adaptation. Listeners, uh, let us know what you think about that film. Charlie Kaufman films in general, Spike Jones films in general. Because, of course, they do div- yeah, their paths divert after, <laughs> after this. Um, let us know at the usual channels, at LW Lies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Lillian, Adam, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been such a treat. Next week, we have the horror film We're All Going to the World's Fair, which has a video game theme running through it. So we're going back to David Cronenberg's Exist Ends. Good timing, because he's got a new film premiering at Cannes this year. It'll be great to rewatch that. Listeners, let us know what you make of that film at the usual channels. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Michael Leader, and my guests this week were Lillian Crawford and Adam Woodward. The podcast is produced by Sam Lucas, Ellie Aitken, and Jamie Maisner, and it's edited by Steph Watts. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.